Thank you guys for coming out. Good to be with God's people. You know, we were... Uh, we started that uh, study on the post-Reformation last week. We're going to kind of continue on that today. Matter of fact, I've got, got these right here. And uh, I was thinking, you have the ebb and the flow, you know, in, in, in uh, what God does with His people. And they have their high points. And then there are times when they have big challenges and it seems like it, they go down and then it's up and down, up and down. And you guys remember when we were doing uh, Acts, and we're kind of stopping in the middle of Acts for a little bit, but I, I think of uh, Acts 2. You had the great sermon by Peter. And, of course, thousands come to the Lord as a result of that. And then you have a lame man healed. And then, because of all the controversy of that, you get Peter and John arrested <laughs> as they had healed a man. They get arrested, and of course, they're, then they're told that the name of Jesus is forbidden, and they let them out. There's a prayer for boldness. And uh, then you get into Acts 5, and you have Ananias and Sapphira. You know, of course, they're, uh, people are selling their possessions, and Ananias and Sapphira act like they uh, actually were going to give more than what they did. And at any rate, uh, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. But what it did is that great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. That's what God did there. And of course, there was big power in the church and uh, the apostles then were freed from jail again. Then they're on trial again. The Word of God keeps spreading and you get you keep getting more and more people saved. And you just go through, um, was in chapter 7, you have Stephen who gives the great address, uh, the great sermon, uses Old Testament passages. And of course, what do they do with him? They stone him. And of course, uh, Paul happens to be there at that time as Stephen becomes a martyr. Saul was persecuting the church. And then we know um, um, in, in chapter 8, as he's introduced there, uh, so is Philip. And you think of the Ethiopian eunuch and uh, the great uh, teaching out of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Can you imagine that being taught to uh, this man as he takes it back? And uh, so that went back to Ethiopia. You see it spread. Then um, Saul was converted. And then, of course, everything is history. And I, I think um, in chapter 14... Verse 2, he's on uh, a missionary journey. And you have Jews and Greeks that he's teaching large numbers of people believing. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So every time God has an act going, you ever notice how the enemy over here has a reaction? and it, But God just keeps on marching through. And He has never ever, ever failed throughout his dealing with men. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you know, he has every right to say, that's enough. But in, then in verse 19 of chapter 14, you have, um, after he's been preaching again, and the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. That wasn't time for him to be dead, though, Right? 
So what did God do? You know, whatever the the deal was, he he gets back up and and he moves on. And actually, I think did he did he go back into the city? <laughs> anyway, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, they prayed and fasted. And then there's the you think of the church council. So you have a lot of strife coming from within the church. You know, you have it from within. You have it from without. And so those battles are always going on, and all at the same time, the church is getting stronger. Even though it may not seem like it, because you, you see this, it's almost like a boxing match, you know, and you know, somebody takes a punch here and a punch there, but um, they're getting ready to make the big strike when they take those punches, too. So, anyway, that, that's what God is doing. He's getting ready to always make the big strike. Uh, what is that? In uh, chapter 18... And verse 9 of Acts, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision. This is when he was at Corinth. And there he's preaching the Word of God. And Paul is starting to get a little fearful. The Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. <laughs> and he settled there for a year and a half. Now, Paul, that's a long time. To us, we've just starting to get settled in. <laughs> we've been at our house for about a year, and we're just now starting to get settled in. <laughs> Paul moved on. That was 18, verse 9. I am with you. And, um, of course, we know that there's going to be... Um, some problems after that, but you know, Paul's already warned ahead of time. This is what's going to happen. And then in 19, verse 23, there was a riot at Ephesus. You remember that? And about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. The church was making quite a disturbance. And it was not small, and uh, it became alarming to people like uh, idol makers, <laughs> silversmiths and such, and who made all the shrines and all the idolatry and satanic things that were going on there. But anyway, you see what God has always done. And of course, that's just a little review of what we had studied in Acts all along. And as I look at the Reformation, that's what happened, and after the Reformation, and of course, it still goes on today. It's still happening today. So that's kind of well, kind of move into what we're going to be talking about tonight. The next challenge to the Reformation after we looked at it inwardly where you had the splits, the divisions in the Reformation shortly after it started. Of course, we had, we had the, the Luther side and then we had what would later be known as the Reformed side such as the Calvinists. Uh, also, uh, just a little bit later after that, you have what happened in England, and that was the Anglican branch. So you have about three major branches there, along with some other little splinters. So some divisions happen within that very first century of, of the church. And that's kind of sad in one sense, but in another sense, God uh, uses that and makes the, the church go on. Uh, but man is man. Of course, God is God. And regardless of what we do, He's going to continue to do what He does. At the same time, we want to stand firm for what we believe in, and that's really the reason why there were divisions in the church, whether it be uh, Lord's Supper, communion, or baptism, 
those two two of the biggest things. And that, so that's what happened there. What we'll look today is um, the Counter Reformation and Arminianism. And I really don't know if we'll get into the Arminianism or not. I, I, they two go in hand in hand. Really, they're pretty close. <laughs> but um, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your people that we gather around and we uh, realize that we're here for one purpose and that that is to glorify you, um, to to read your word and um, let your word speak to us. Uh, Each one of us have um, places in our lives that uh, need to hear encouragement. Uh, We we need to be able to... uh, understand what you're saying to us, the things we need so badly. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for your Spirit who gives us the power to be able to understand some more of who you are. In your Son's name, Amen. So the Reformation was one of the greatest movements in all of church history. Of course, you look what happened in, in throughout the book of Acts and that history in the first century. That's just incredible there. And it's all biblical. But God's movement keeps on going. Even though we're not writing Scripture, He still uses movements, uses men. And we know the Reformation focused upon deep biblical things such as faith alone, justification by faith alone, Scriptura, sola Scriptura, grace alone, right? Uh, Glory to God alone, Christ alone. And that changed people's lives. Not only transformed them, but something more than transforming it, uh, you know, it made them, or more than reforming it, transformed them. It changed the individual lives. The Bible became common to man. That he, the common man, now uh, it was common for him to be able to read Scripture, and that was one of the greatest things that the Reformation did. It opened the Bible up where it had been held from people for all those years. So, church. Reformation is always challenged. The opposition always starts, uh, we think, at the, what's the top of the food chain? Satan himself, right? I mean, that enemy. Uh, he has his minions, and that's, he uses people. He uses demons. He uses people to destroy the work of God. And uh, we just look at the book of Acts, and uh, we see like a chess match going on there. You know, God makes a move, and Satan tries to counter it. Any move that he makes, really... God allows. Could God could keep him from doing that. And he often sometimes does. But the opposition, whether it be inside, whether it be outside, we can look at the Catholics not picking on them, just saying, here's what happened. Here's what happened historically and why there was a Reformation, we know. But the Catholic produced a counter-Reformation. And uh, that's something I've really never really talked about really very much at all. Maybe a few sentences. But uh, it's, Um, known as the Catholic Reformation. We think of the Protestant Reformation. There was a Catholic Reformation. And so they tried to reform the church because many of them knew full well there had to be something happen in the Catholic Church because it was at a really low level. Uh, Morality uh, and politically and what's that? Morality, what's that? Yeah, yeah, how do you define that in our culture today? Right? Is there any morality anymore? Where's that? Yeah, um, it's sad, but that's where it's at. Um, the the Protestants probably 
keyed the Catholic Reformation to move with greater speed. And so that's what we start with. At first, it didn't seem to really move them much at all. They didn't really take this Reformation very seriously. They, they had all the power and who was going to be able to make that movement. It, it, basically, it's Luther and a few of his people that you know hung around him. And um, The thing is, is that the Reformation started to take over territory and influence of people that they didn't want that. So they wanted to win that back. They wanted to win back that territory and they wanted to advance the Catholic faith on to Europe further and deeper into Europe, up, up north. So there's a gradual development, but it took a while for the Catholics to start reforming against the Reformed Church. It wasn't that effective. And then came, and I have it there, the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits. How many here have heard of the Jesuits? Jesuits... Uh, Actually, it was started by a guy by the name of Ignatius of Loyola. And across the United States, you'll see quite a few colleges called Loyola. Many of them. I, I know there was one good basketball team, Loyola of Marymount, one year. And they averaged over 100 points a game. They made it to the NCAA deep in the tournament because they were high scores. But I noticed Ignatius, or, or uh, Loyola. Then you know, there's a Loyola in Chicago. It's just they're just all over the place. Well, they're named after this guy. He started the the Jesuits, and he um, actually wound up getting himself in a cave, and it just did some thinking. He wasn't running away uh, or being stowed away like Luther was. While Luther was being stowed away in Warburg Castle, here's uh, Loyola who is in this cave and he has this religious turmoil and he uh, writes this meditation book it's called the spiritual exercises it sounds good I mean usually you didn't have too many Catholics writing about their relationship with uh, with God and he wrote on discipline a lot nothing wrong with that and how to develop in the Christian life um, then he organized this society of Jesus and, and this is in 1534 so this is relatively about the same time as what the Reformation is has gone on. It's had a little bit of a start. But there's six other men who share the same vision with him. And in 1540, the Pope comes along and establishes this order. And it's a Roman Catholic order. And it turns out to be the most powerful, the most significant uh, order or any kind of movement in that 16th century Reformation in the 1500s is very significant to them. And what it was really about is um, he wrote this thing called Rules for Thinking in with the Church. One of them is there. There are two things. Number one, there has to be absolute obedience to the Church. How do you know that? <laughs> to the Church. And we know our obedience is to be to Christ, because Christ is the head of the church, but yet he established that. That was our number one point. And number two was that the Jesuit was to oppose the people who took the view of a guy who they claimed to be very Catholic, 
Augustine. Jesuit order versus the uh, Augustine. That's funny. Today, St. Augustine, the Catholics boldly proclaim they always have. But at that time, now he was one because people were turning to that theology. Luther grabbed his theology and Luther came from what monkish group of people? Augustinians. So, the uh, order was very much at the command of the Pope and... He was opposed, Ignatius of Loyola and all of them, were opposed to any kind of Reformation teaching. They hated it. And so they were out to destroy it. Now that sounds kind of like what um, maybe Saul had been before at one time against Christianity. only thing is, as far as I know, Ignatius of Loyola never converted like Paul did. Um, but So those are two things. Absolute obedience to the church and we must oppose Augustinianism. And of course, they did it all the way to the point of uh, death. So they, they produced a discipline and they had got elite men in this society. They got the best of the best. And it would take 12 years to train them. They believed and educated. 12 years, not 4 years like in college. Not four years in college and three years of seminary. That's seven years. We're talking 12 years of doctrinal (laughs) training, uh, self-examination. And um, When they finished that program, they were educated. They were disciplined. They were committed to the cause to destroy Augustinianism or Reformed theology. And there's an analogy of a football game that has been used by uh, some people. And it's in the first quarter, and even in the first half, the reform movement is winning. They're ahead, moving ahead. doesn't even look like the Catholics are really in the game very much. They try, but they're, uh, they're getting beat. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> the Catholics bring on some new players in the game who take this very seriously. Remember at first, Catholics really didn't take it that seriously. They did enough to do what they did with Luther, but uh, they didn't see anything happening huge out of that way. Um, The game takes on a big complexion by the time you get into the second half. Now, these elite men, discipline, education, counseling, they're concerned with education. They want to get the people or those guys to think. They they were into counsel. Uh, Spiritual guidance they offered spiritual guidance as far as their spiritualism was concerned. Um, and they really got good at doing this. Does this sound familiar? They could take something, it was called a system, uh, where they could excuse almost anything for most people. And so they'd say one thing, but mean another. <laughs> Isn't that the way the political system works a lot too? <laughs> And, and so that's what they did. Well, there was another guy that came along besides this uh, Ignatius of Loyola that uh, played a key role. His name's... We can go down to Taos and if you know the name of that church, you'll know who I'm talking about. Francis Xavier. And he came from Spain. And the Jesuits did not just remain in Europe. What he did, did was take this to a level higher because he spread it out and he was a Jesuit missionary. And so, 
you know, what Christianity does has its missionaries. You look through the book of Acts, boy, there are many uh, that, that God designs to take it to this place, to this place. Well, they had an elaborate system, and He took it all around the world. Uh, the Protestants weren't really doing it that much at that time. Uh, they later on become the great missionaries in the 1800s. Uh, but Xavier first went to India. He was from Spain. Most of these guys were from Spain early on. Then he went to Japan, and uh, he preached this Catholic faith. Uh, he got to an island that was close to China. So you see he's been heading east of there, taking this where uh, they had never been. That was quite a deal. He dies in 1552, so we're, we're halfway up through the 1500s. There are a thousand Jesuits in Europe, and in South America even, Asia, and Africa. That's how far this was, was spreading out. And so the Catholic spirituality kept going. You go to Spain, you'll find out not only Loyola, not only Xavier, but you have two St. Johns, one St. John of the Cross, uh, St. John of God. All of these guys were spreading this and, and uh, being missionaries, and they, they were considered also very spiritual. You have mysticism that really came into play at this time, too. Catholic mysticism. Some of the strange things that would go on. Um, there was also a lady by the name of Teresa of Avila. So now we have Francis Xavier, which is Taos, and then we have a lady here who has a middle name, but her mom's name was that was Teresa. And I was asking her last night, do you know if this is the same Teresa? Don't know. Tend to think probably is. She's from Spain. Teresa of Avila. Um, she wrote. She was really big into combining grace and works. That's what Catholicism really is. And that's the heart of the matter. It's combining grace and works. Any religion can do that. You can be spiritual as what you want, but whenever you combine the two, it's the most dangerous element that could possibly be because it's totally against the grace of God. Totally against the gospel. But in her combination of grace and works, she had a lot of nice spiritual thoughts and thinking. There was no real, I guess you could say, assurance in, in those writings, though. But she had a life of contemplation. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, Catholics have always been into active work. You work. Okay. After Avila? Okay. Well, she took the works and she took the contemplation as some of these other men were doing too. And, uh, of course, you, you see what's happening there. You know, it's a, some kind of an inner mystical um, type of a theology that uh, arrived out of this. But it was to get spiritual. And that's what I find a lot of Catholic people get. Um, if they really get strong into spiritual aspects, they get into these mystics and uh, the thinking that goes outside of Scripture. Uh, but it somehow it takes them closer to the church, the Pope, Christ, God. Okay, so we have all that develop. A lot of these guys came from Spain. Do you remember uh, 1492... Columbus, and then, it, it, of course, you think of the, the Spanish, and of course they had a lot to do with uh, what happened over here in America, South America, and, and such, but a lot of that you know, came from that area. That's why when you go to the South American world, you go to Mexico and further on down all the way through Central America and such, Spanish-speaking, you know, they made an impact. But most of the religion there is what? 
Catholic. Um, so the, there needed to be papal reform. That's the popes. So they needed to change. And uh, they were very ineffective at first. So they started cleaning up things. Luther made a cartoon out of it. Luther drew this cartoon. And what he did, he, he showed that, um, of course, there were the Pope and the Cardinals, and uh, they were trying to clean up things, and they were taking this feather duster, you know, in the little small, little areas. <laughs> you, you get it, right, Bob? Um, they're moving the cobwebs around, they're moving the dust around from here to there, and Luther just laughs at them, you know, all the time. He's making fun of them. And um, he, what he was showing is that their Reformation was really not doing anything. It's not being done. That's early in the early days there. Um, and as a matter of fact, had there not been some kind of reform, the, re- the popes were actually realizing if they don't do something, don't do something quick, there wasn't going to be any Catholic church at all. That's what they were concerned about. Well, they didn't have anything they were standing on. And they didn't even have any morals that they were standing on. And uh, the popes were immoral. The uh, uh, priests were immoral. The people knew it. Uh, they were taking their money and such. Um, and, and so they said, we need to unite the church again, and we need to oppose the Protestants. It's going to be complicated because you're going to have political issues here, and that was kind of hard to work through, and they're kind of ca- uh, power plays. So it, they were trying to get a council together, but it, it just took a long time, and Luther rather enjoyed all this. He's at Wittenberg. And uh, he, and he's watching all this, and he sees all the repeated failures. <laughs> and it looks like you know the Reformation is going to explode off the scene, and the Catholics are just going to fade back. Well, there comes the Council of Trent. They finally got a council together, 1545. The Council of Trent was really about a summary of doctrine. Doctrine is what they believe. They didn't really have anything together of all what they believed. The people didn't read anyway. They, you just come to church, you know, and you listen to us. By the way, it'll be in Latin. You can't understand it anyway. <laughs> and by the way, the singing is going to be done by uh, professional people, and it's going to be done in Latin, so you can't understand it. You can't participate. You just be there, though. Bring your money. <laughs> That's right. The indulgence is right. So... Um, for the first 18 years, it's kind of off and on. Then finally, in 1564, after 18 years, it's completed. Here's where they make their movement uh, against the Reformation. And they summarized their doctrine. And it was first and very important. Number one, the Pope has the final word. You can say, well, they always had that, right? Not really. Uh, they had bishops, they had their councils, but up until Trent, the Pope wasn't the man as he is from Trent onward to today. That's really where he got his power. So you've heard of ex cathedra. Is anybody familiar with that? To speak ex cathedra. Ex is what? Exit is what? Out? And cathedra is the chair. To speak out of the chair. That means he was representing and he was Christ here on earth. He took the place of Christ. In the place of Christ, the Pope was. So whenever he would make a decree, it was like God himself was speaking. 
So whatever he came up with, he spoke ex cathedra, out of the chair. When that happened, uh, that's as good as God speaking. The Pope has the last word. The modern Catholic Church was born from that. That's where things really headed south the way we would look at it. Um, Number two, the life and ministry of the church did clean up. Um, All the abuses, all the things that were going wrong, the immorality, the ignorance of the priest, uh, it it had been very low. They started cleaning that up. That's good in one sense. In another sense, it's just like stirring the dust, isn't it? (laughs) It's not washing. Number three, Catholic, Catholic doctrine was clarified. And they were determined to believe whatever they put forth, this is what everybody's going to believe. And, uh, of course, there were many issues that were debatable or open and before, and now it was closed. This is the way it is. Trent is why the Catholics believe today. Yeah, there was uh, a council in the 1960s, but all it did was reiterate what Trent was about. I can't remember the year, but um, anyway, it it really never changed. And and people today would say, well, yeah, I'm a Catholic, but I don't believe that. I don't believe in purgatory, they'll say. Or I don't believe, you know, that just because you're baptized as a baby that that uh, guarantees, you know, whatever. You know, you can go on and on with that. Many of them will say, well, I don't believe that. But the thing is, if you don't believe what your church believes, then why are you a part of it? You know, if you take major doctrines. The Catholic Church has one uniform belief system, and that's what people are taught from the day they're um, brought to their schools till the, the grave. Uh, Trent said uh, there was a new Trent Okay, the new Trent religion is what it was called so things changed there the reformation started and then the Catholics have their reformation and they said all the uh, truths and all the, the conduct it's contained in the written books and in unwritten traditions they still say that today and that's what they're about. Uh, that's their authority. So, Scripture and tradition were considered to be equal. Yeah, uh, of course, whatever the Pope says is going to be over all that. And, of course, Carolyn asked one time her mom, she's, who kept saying, the Holy Father, the Holy Father. Carolyn finally said, you know, you think, well, that's God. And she said, who is the Holy Father? And she said, the Pope. That's what they teach. The Holy Father was was the Pope. And so, um, we can see how much power that he had. Well, Sola Scriptura was the cry that Luther had. That's the cry that we have to have. Sola Scriptura. A lot. There have been some very solid people who know Scripture, some of them have been in Reformed theology who have converted into Catholicism because they were challenged with what? Sola Scriptura. They would question them. They would make them bring up some doubts. Well, where in Scripture does it say that it's just the Bible alone? 
you, you reformers always say scriptura, sola scriptura, scripture alone. What would you do if you had somebody ask you that? They'd say, where in the scripture is that? I'd say, well, it's in there. What's that? Okay, that's pretty high authority, right? Okay, and that's speaking of Christ. Of course, when we think we think of the Word of God, um, can we go to a few of these? Yeah, go to First Corinthians, chapter four, verse six. Now, these would be some of the scriptures that they, the reformers, would be standing upon. And it's not just one scripture that comes out and says, the Bible is the only book that we have and we don't need anything else. You're not going to find that in a scripture that says that. But throughout the totality of scripture, you're going to see one scripture. We don't have enough time tonight or tomorrow or the next day to go through all those scriptures to find out. You tie those together and you see that's exactly what it's saying. But in Corinthians 4, 6, I think this is rather significant. Now, these things, brethren, Paul's writing to Corinthians, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. There he's talking about something that's written. It's written down. It's coming from God's appointed teachers not that they're over anybody, but he used prophets, he used the teachers, uh, and of course that scripture was written um, at that time. Now if we go to, I think pastoral epistles are good ones to go. Turn to 1 Timothy 4. They're just all over the place. Like I say, we there's just so many. But we put them together and they really start to speak. And he says here to Timothy, uh, until I come, give attention to what? Traditions? Other books? Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's a pretty good one, isn't it? Um, While we're in Timothy, turn turn to 2 Timothy. Of course, we know... Chapter 3 is a famous one. We uh, look in verse 15. And from childhood you have known the sacred writings. That's, that's our scripture, right? That's the Bible. From childhood, you, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to what? Salvation. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So it, has, it gives you wisdom to, to have salvation. And then he goes on to say, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed, Theonoustos. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the men of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's a good scripture dealing with scripture. Um, look in Second Peter. Think of Second Timothy, that's all chapter three. Second Timothy three, that's a great one. Then you can think of Second Peter. Peter is one of the apostles that hung out with Jesus for three years. And he makes a statement on the Scripture. He was the first pope. (laughs) That's what they claimed. I think that probably came from Trent too, right? Or it was developed even more. Yeah, And and everything hinges on that because he was the pope to them. (laughs) That's right. 
He was a rock. Um, little rock, yeah. Second <laughs> Peter three fifteen. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, writing, as also in all his letters. That's Paul's epistles, all the doctrinal epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Even Peter is saying that. Yeah, there are some hard things in Scripture, isn't it? Which they untaught and unstable to store it as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. So he's talking Scripture very clearly there. Second um, Peter also, um, there is another passage dealing with uh, Scripture. In verse 20 of chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, 20, but these would be some of the scriptures that you could use if somebody said, well, what makes you believe in Sola Scriptura? Jesus says it. Peter says it. Paul says it. If we can't take their authority, then who do we take? Well, the Pope and the church. Matter of fact, it ranks over scripture. I think the, the, the tradition uh, ranks over. I think the Pope ranks over the scripture because they can interpret it and make it say what they want. Verse 20, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, of the writings, is a matter of one's own interpretation. It wasn't something that somebody just wrote down because they just felt like it. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That means it's inspired, uh, just like our Timothy passage. Oh, here's one you might uh, not think of too much, but it... Uh, Kind of interesting. Uh, look in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. Luke's writing. Writing to Theophilus, right? He says, Hey, I, I investigated everything carefully from the beginning. I wrote it out for you, put it in order. Verse 4, why? So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. The writing of Scripture. He wrote Luke. He wrote the Gospel. Uh, he wrote the book of Acts. And so he's saying that writing, uh, it, it's so that they would know the truth. It is the truth, right? Now, take chapter 10 of Luke. Twenty-six. Lawyer talking about how do you inherit eternal life, and lawyer stands up, puts him to the test, saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And he said to him, "What is written in the law? What's the law stand for? All the scriptures, the Old Testament. How does it read to you?" And of course, there we we get some of the commandments there, but uh, Jesus use the law continually. If you remember Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is baptized, then He goes out into the wilderness, and then He's tempted. Forty days, He's tempted. And what does Jesus always appeal to whenever He is tempted? Verse 3, the tempter came, said to him, If you are the Son of God. You notice he starts with this the same way that he did the first Adam. If. <laughs> a little, it's about doubt. 
And that's what the Catholic Church does so well to put doubt in about the Word of God. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus answered and said, It is what? Written. And he quotes right out of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live on bread alone. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Wow. That's quite a testimony right there, isn't it? Uh, Secondly, the devil took him into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If, there we go again, the doubting of the word, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And he quotes from Scripture in his own interpretation. As he puts it together. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Puts them together cleverly so that it makes it look like that's exactly what can happen. Hey, if you do this, here's what will happen. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to very high mountains, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. How ludicrous. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him. Um, Jesus and his high view of the Scripture. Of course, He is the Scripture. He is the Word, as Debbie just pointed out in John 1. But He says, here's what's been said. Here's what God says. Um, Let's look at Acts just for a moment. Acts 17. 11 and 12. There's so many. Some of these you're familiar with and others you go, what's that one? I am too. What, what is that? Okay. Uh, Thessalonica. Okay. He goes out of Berea. And, uh, I mean, he, uh, no, he goes to Berea. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness. What did they receive? Any tradition? Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures, the writing, the writings, daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Why? Because they believed what was taught out of the Word of God. I think that's very significant, isn't it? Not a bad passage to work for that. How about in Acts 13, 48-49? It brings people to Christ. Over and over then, Acts, you see that? Uh, Acts 13.48, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The Word of God was preached. They believed it. It had already been appointed, but the Word had to be preached first. And the Word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Does that sound anything um, indifferent to the rest of Acts? The word of the Lord was preached, believed, it spread. I mean, that's all the way through Acts, isn't it? Acts 18.28 Apollos, 
for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures, graphe, that Jesus was the Christ. When Paul would go into a synagogue, what would he use to show that Jesus was the Messiah? Scriptures. What's Apollos doing? Doing the same thing. Exact same thing. How about Romans? Let's do one of those. Romans 15.4 I like this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Don't you like that? For whatever was written was written for our instruction and it's as we persevere through this life as He makes us He preserves us really. It's more than us doing the action of persevering. Don't you like preservation even better? I think you recognize that. The encouragement of the Scriptures. That's how we have hope. You're just having a a down day. You turn to the Scriptures. Boom. The hope just jumps off the page, doesn't it? Sure does. Well, one more. And then... These are just a few. I'm skipping a bunch. That I just wrote these down and I just kind of going through a little search and I go, well, this is good. This is good. <laughs> I didn't have enough time to write them all down. I know there are more. You got, you guys think there are more? But if you hold on to a few of these, if you do ever get challenged, I don't care whether it's by Catholic or how about um, a Muslim, how about some an atheist? You can say, well, I, I, of course you can say, well, you're coming from Scripture though. I can't think of any place better and if they don't want to believe it because it comes out of the Scripture. Anybody can say something out of their own thought, out of their mouth, but to have support through something that's written is the best evidence that you can have. So I'm not ashamed to use Scripture. That's really all we have anyway, even if they don't want to believe it. But that's that's the way it operates. This is why I believe it because, you know, because, because. Revelation, I said that, right? Very last chapter. Right near the end of the book. Yeah, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. I think not only the book of Revelation... But I think all of Scripture, if anybody adds to it, takes away from it, uh, it's, they're in grave danger. And I think this whole system of Roman Catholicism is in grave danger as they add on to Scripture. And so they don't say it stops at Revelation. It continues to go on. Anything added on to that. You know, I've heard Oh, oh, good point. But we find out that they have we have trouble with inspiration on those particular books, the apocrypha. When they come back to that, on says, okay, then why doesn't the Jewish, the keepers of the Old Testament, 
acknowledge those books as inspired. They don't. They don't consider them inspired. Exactly. The of the Old Testament. So. They weren't in the canon. When Jesus was around, he never quoted from those books. And, of course, that, that was already... It was canonized. It was already put together, wasn't it? For 400 years before that. And went all the way up to Daniel. And then uh, other minor prophets, you think. So, Sola Scriptura. Boy, that in itself right there. Uh, the next one also is another biggie, and this was the cry of the Reformation too. What was it? Sola Scriptura. And then also what? Sola Fide. Faith alone. Justification by faith. Alone. Did the Catholic Church believe at that time of justification by faith? Absolutely. They will tell you. We believe in justification by faith. To this day, they will say that and say, Oh, okay. Well, that sounds pretty good. It sounds real good. It sounds like something I believe in. <laughs> the uh, Council of Trent developed this careful doctrine of justification by faith and they call it love. Uh, can sound kind of Protestant. Luther would say, alone. And then they'd say, faith is not alone. Well, the Reformers would also, it's not alone. Because if you have faith, if you're a true believer, then you will have works. But the Catholics, whenever they'd say not alone, is that their works or their love that they would have. And here is the heart of the matter. And it boils down to two words. As long as I've been studying um, Catholic theology versus Reformation theology... You have a whole bunch of stuff on both sides and a lot of things can come at that that way and and those are major truths. But there's one sticking point and it's right here, justification by faith. The Catholics taught imputation, not imputation, but um, infused. And this defines any other religion. It is what God does as long as I cooperate and I do my part. And that God infuses His justification in with your righteousness. Do you see where it's at? This is the heart of the matter. You can peel everything back and just put it over here on the side for a bit and let's look at it right here. You're either declared righteous because of what Christ did on the cross and has nothing to do with what you do, even your faith. And we must have faith to be justified. Right? That's part of the deal. But we're saying it's still not even you doing that. It's still God that gives you that. But the Catholics say, yes, it's believing in God, but you have to do this, 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 this. And that's the point. Imputation or infusion those two words and so when one deals with any kind of religion any other religion is going to do the same thing uh, it's going to have your works involved and you have to come down and saying, I believe in what God did was that 
he applied the righteousness of Christ to me and had nothing to do with my own works. Had nothing. That's the heart of Christianity, isn't it? That's the cross. That's where it's at. That was the big stickler between the two. That's why they couldn't get back together. Luther wanted to make it one church. He didn't want to come out of it and start Lutheranism. That wasn't his point. And that's a good idea. It'd be great to have everybody reformed and transformed. But uh, he also had his right-hand man, and we talked about him last week, and we know that he tried harder than even Luther, and he would bend whatever he could to try to make this one. We don't want to be apart. And uh, so, that didn't work, did it? Uh, they were totally against uh, faith alone. And the council recognized the only way of salvation, justification by faith, is your faith. That's what it comes down to. So they renounce the thing that matters most to Christians, that matters most to us, and what the gospel at the cross is all about and how we are really justified in Christ alone and doing what He did. What did the uh, Protestants do to respond to Trent? They were invited to come to Trent. None of them showed up. Why not? They wouldn't have been listened to. (laughs) They wouldn't have had any vote in this at all. They've already shown that they were totally against them. It would have been crazy. But Calvin said this. This is how you need to answer them. I think this is very wise. He says, The whole may be this way summed up. Their error consists in sharing the work between God and ourselves. Sharing the work. Work of salvation. It's God and me. That's right. Yep. So it's to transfer to ourselves the obedience of a pious will in assenting to divine grace, whereas this is the proper work of God Himself, Calvin says. It's the work of God, just Himself. So Calvin was saying that Trent wanted to bring together what God does and what we do and kind of make it a game of percentages. He does some of it and I do some of it. Maybe he does a little bit more. All that does is take you back in to the days of Augustine and who did Augustine go up against in this argument? Pelagius. We can be nice and call it semi-Pelagianism though. Because the Catholics did believe in original sin. Not exactly like like what Reformed theology would be but they would believe in in sin. And so semi-Pelagianism is Roman Catholicism. That's why I was going to try to put Arminianism with this tonight, and obviously that time is out. There was also a guy... How did the Lutherans respond to this? Well, Calvin had quite a bit. He just wrote in kind of a little small booklet. But the Lutheran response was massive. And a guy by the name of Martin Chemnitz. Anybody ever heard of him? Martin Chemnitz. 
he takes over after Luther and he wrote a four-volume work on his response to the Council of Trent. It was very good. The, the, the Catholics recognized Calvin. They recognized Chimnus. They realized they were worthy opponents. They were very well studied. The way that they wrote it and responded back. They knew that uh, they were up against some things there. And they said, you had Martin Luther, you had Martin Chimnitz. The Catholics said the second Martin was Martin Chimnitz who defended the teaching of the first Martin. Had he not done that, he said, Luther and all his followers would not have stood. I'm not so sure about that, but that's that's interesting. I think that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> um, that definitely was enough to bring forth to the, at least the German world there what was going on. I finished this up with the fact that there was, after this, when you had Trent, you had the Reformation, then now the Catholics finally get their thing together. Now we're in the fourth quarter taking that football game. Guess who's ahead? At least the way that it looks out in the world. The Catholics are ahead. And it looks like they're going to win. The 30-year war went from 1618 to 1648. And that's how far we've gone there. Um, Trent settled their doctrinal issues. Did them good. Reformed know exactly where the Catholics stand. The Catholics know exactly where the Reformed stand. And the next place where they're going to settle the issue is on the battlefield. Christianity was not ready to let heresy and truth live side by side. So we're going to have to go to war. And you have Germany, and you kind of have a split there in Germany. Some are Lutheran, some are German, uh, German, or Catholic. And um, where things really got started was a place called Prague. And a Roman Catholic official who happened to be in Prague, the town, he was thrown out of a window in this Protestant territory in Prague. And that's what got it started. The Catholics said, that's enough. They declared war right there. Real war. Not a theological battle now. We're talking about a political battle and a real physical war. The Protestants have to defend themselves did very poorly at first. Matter of fact, it looked like they were going to get romped out. There was a guy by the name of Wallenstein of the Romans, and he romped all over Europe. And they're killing Christians, uh, Protestant uh, reformers, all over the place. And the battle would have soon been over. But there was a Sweden guy who was a, restor- a reformer. You're probably not even familiar with him. Gustavus Adolphus. I'd just heard of him before. Don't know too much about him. But um, they had their creed um, there in uh, as far as Reformed theology. And uh, whenever they were invaded, Adolphus was able to put up a big front against them. He lost his life, but I'll tell you what happened. He won that battle and the war probably because Northern Europe more or less was the Reformed people. Southern Europe, basically Catholic. And even to this day, that's pretty well the way that you can divide it. I think that's interesting. Um, There was a truce of Westphalia 
and they recognized uh, the religious right of each other to go ahead and coexist with each other. So a 30-year war was done. But I do want to say, I think the fortunes of Christianity have sunk so low that justification by faith alone as a whole is taken the same way as the Catholics would take it. They may not have a list of the works, but the work might be you have to believe. You have to do something. You have to be baptized or whatever. Yeah. Right. And that's a natural way of thinking, isn't it? Um, we know that that's not negotiable, is it? But that's that's what that fight was about. And you'll you'll find people in that are Protestants today, and they say, "Hey, there's nothing different between us and Catholics. We shouldn't. We need to love them, or we, we need to love them." But there is definitely they haven't changed one bit. It sounds like they have, and they're accepting all religions today. They they accept Muslims, they accept uh, the separated brethren. That's who we would be. We're all Christians. We're all going to heaven. Mother Teresa said that. She's one of the biggest spokesmen they've had. That's a lie. That is saying Jesus, what he did, what he made a statement was a totally lie, and what Paul said and John said. That's really not really the truth, because we're all going to heaven. The Catholics say that today. That's one place where they've kind of changed because at one time they would say they were the only true church and them and them only would get into heaven because they have the rights to get there through starting at baptism and go through all the, the whole element. They still believe that today even though they'll say all of others are going to go too. Catholic Church today and Trent... Same thing. They're teaching back in the 1600s, 1500s is current with what they believe today. It's still the same thing. There is a new Catholic catechism that came out back a few years ago. People went crazy over it. Um, it flows right out of the Council of Trent. It didn't change any major thing there. It softened it down, but it's still the same thing. And, of course, we know that there were uh, there was time back in the 90s, 80s, uh, where there was the Protestants were to get together with the Catholics and we can be all one and let's agree. And the Catholics said, don't steal our sheep, basically is what it was about. <laughs> Chuck Colson, a lot of other people said, that, you know, a lot of good, sound, solid people that I've always respected. J.I. Packer even joined in it. I'm going, I can't believe J.I. Packer. Do you really know what they're doing here? Um, kind of surprised me. Then Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, well, Packer sometimes would kind of cross over on a lines, you know, trying to be real loving. Martin Lloyd-Jones and him had a, a kind of a deal and they kind of split because of some of those issues. Um, not trying to bring down Packer. I'm just saying a lot of good godly men. Well, that takes us up. That's a counter-reformation. That would take us up to Augustinianism, which really isn't a vast difference between what Roman Catholicism is about. And, and it comes from a guy who was very, very reformed. <laughs> so, Reformation really had some challenges. It's still with us today. We're part of it.
hope this doesn't seem like too much of a lecture. I hope the scriptures that we we're going through, sometimes it seems like lecture, but it's, it's kind of interesting to see where we got from where we're at. Yep. The thinking, right? Yeah, Luke called, um, doing a little bit better than he was Sunday, and he had called Bob and told him that he didn't wind up going to Columbia some of the uh, he's still swollen but it's not proceeding it's not going any worse and he's feeling somewhat better he took some uh, pretty powerful medication and evidently um, he's improved a little bit he wanted to say and he says that's because um, thank you for your prayers thank you for your prayers yep she's doing great definitely pray for uh, a very good quick recovery for her she's used to this <laughs> she she is really tough told me this morning and I'm not certain that I thought Trey I heard her right that this is her 8th time Wow. I, I, I don't even understand it. I, I can't even, I can't fathom it. Yeah, and Cindy is like the very next day or something. Maybe the eighth, I think. Might be the same day. I don't know. Yeah, that's Capital Region also. She's at Capital Region. No, the Barb's at St. Mary's. That's right. That's right. That's where she's going. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. All this is running through my head. That's right. Yeah. She was. She told me that. Uh, what room? Let's close with prayer. Uh, Eldon, would you like to close us there? I'm very thankful that on September 6, 1965, I didn't know anything about Calvinism. I didn't know anything about Arminianism. It was just me and Jesus. And I got saved. Despite all of this, it didn't make any difference. The Lord convicted me of the verse that says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's where it well, starts. Up until then, I was looked at everybody else and I was better than they were. Because I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And when I heard that scripture and it was kind of explained, all of a sudden the Lord convicted me that that was me. And but I, you were good. I wasn't an Al- Armenian or a Calvinist or anything. It was just me and Jesus. Yeah. Yep. And I don't think... I think there's too much emphasis put on these things. Because it is just me and Jesus. It's everybody and Jesus. And I know a lot of people that are Christians that their theology is terrible. But they know the Lord. I know the people. Yeah, and at the same time, you want you would desire that they would grow to know the Lord 
uh, in a deeper way, you know, as far as the, the scripture. It's, it's really all about this anyway, isn't it? It's saving well, Father, our we thank you for this day. Thank you for all your blessings that come our way. Thank you for what Jesus did on the cross, paved the way for us, made a way, accepted us. And we thank you that we're part of the family of We just continue to search and seek after you, to know your truth, and ask you to guide and direct us in Christ. Amen. Amen. Part of the family of God. You guys know that Gator song? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. That's all I know. <laughs> and, and you had been in church, you had been raised up, right? What did he that's what I thought. What did he do to you know, because you were so close, you couldn't have been closer, but you were still on that other side, weren't you? What, what was it? Where did he bring that sin? Where? It's what I've asked, I've that scripture. I was in a, in a Billy Graham crusade training class, and the pastor that was leading it was going through a bunch of scriptures. And when he got to that scripture that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Lord hit me. I knew it was to me. And you had done all these things. <laughs> you were. 